1: Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 98. This week's show is entitled The Still Mysterious Death of Edgar Allan Poe. But first up for this episode an article by John Black from the www.ancientorigins.net website. The origins of human beings according to ancient Sumerian texts. Sumer, or the land of civilized kings, flourished in Mesopotamia, now modern day Iraq, around four and a half thousand BC. Sumerians created an advanced civilization with its own system of elaborate language and writing, architecture and arts, astronomy and mathematics. Their religious system was a complex one, comprised of hundreds of gods. According to the ancient texts, each Sumerian city was guarded by its own god, and while humans and gods used to live together, the humans were servants to the gods. The Sumerian creation myth can be found on a tablet in Nippur, an ancient Mesopotamian city founded in approximately 5000 BC. The creation of the earth, Enuma Elish, according to the Sumerian tablets, begins like this. When in the height heaven was not named, And the earth beneath did not yet bear a name, And the prime evil Apsu who begat them, And Chaos, Tiamat, the mother of them both, Their waters were mingled together, And no field was formed, No marsh was to be seen, when of the gods none had been called into being, and none bore a name, and no destinies were ordained. Then were created the gods in the midst of heaven, Lamu and Lahamu were called into being. Sumerian mythology claims that in the beginning human-like gods ruled over earth. When they came to the earth there was much work to be done, and these gods toiled of the soil digging to make it habitable and mining its minerals. The texts mention that at some point the gods mutinied against their labour. When the gods, like men, bore the work and suffered the toil, the toil of the gods was great, the work was heavy, the distress was much. Anu, the god of gods, agreed that their labour was too great. His son Enki, or Ea, proposed to create man to bear the labour, and so with the help of his half-sister, Ninki, he did. A god was put to death, and his body and blood was mixed with clay. From that material, the first human being was created, in likeness to the gods. You have slaughtered a god together. With his personality, I have removed your heavy work. I have imposed your toil on man. In the clay, God and man shall be bound, to a unity brought together, so that to the end of days the flesh and the soul, which in a God have ripened, that soul in a blood kinship be bound. The first man was created in Eden, a Sumerian word which means flat terrain. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, Eden is mentioned as the garden of the gods, and is located somewhere in Mesopotamia between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Initially human beings were unable to reproduce on their own, but were later modified with the help of Enki and Ninki. Thus Adipa was created as a fully functional and independent human being. This modification was done without the approval of Enki's brother Enlil and a conflict between the gods began. Enlil became the adversary of man, and the Sumerian Tablet mentions that men served gods and went through much hardship and suffering. Adapa, with the help of Enki, ascended to Anu, where he failed to answer a question about the bread and water of life. Opinions vary on the similarities between this creation story and the biblical story of Adam and Eve in Eden. The idea that our souls or spirits reincarnate reaches back at least 3,000 years. Discussions on the subject can be found in the ancient traditions of India, Greece and the Celtic Druids. It's a tantalising belief that our spirits are not confined to the seven, eight or nine decades of life on earth, if we're lucky, but that we have lived before and that we might live again. From the paranormal.about.com website, an article by Stephen Wagner. Have you lived before? Here are nine clues you might find in your present life. What do you believe? Do you believe that you have had a past life or lives? Growing up, working, loving and suffering in roles very different from the ones you are now playing out. Perhaps you were a different race, socioeconomic class or gender. Some even believe you could have been another living species entirely – a dog, a gazelle or fish perhaps. Those who believe in past lives suggest that there might be clues to what our past lives were in the various complex aspects that make up our current physical, emotional, intellectual and psychological personalities. Here are some of them. Deja vu. Most of us have experienced the eerie feeling of deja vu. The sudden, surprising feeling that an event we are going through at the moment has happened exactly this way before. Psychologist Arthur Funkhauser has broken down this phenomenon into subcategories. Deja vécu, an event already experienced or lived through. Deja senti. Already felt, perhaps triggered by a voice or music, and déjà visite, a place so familiar we feel that we've been there before. While scientists and psychiatrists insist there are neurological explanations for these phenomena, others wonder if these strange feelings could be vague, fleeting memories of past lives. You enter a house or building, for example, in a town you've never visited before. Yet every detail of that place is familiar. You know what's in the next room and up the stairs. You have the overwhelming feeling that you've been there before. Have you? In a past life? Weird Memories My daughter has memories of childhood events that we know never really happened. Is she just remembering a child's fantasy, misunderstanding, or even a dream that she now interprets as reality? Or is she remembering something that happened to her before she was born into this lifetime? Human memory is fraught with error and incongruities, and I'm sure many of us have memories of things that family and friends can attest never occurred. So the question is, is it faulty memory? Or a remembrance of lives past. Dreams and Nightmares. Recurring dreams and nightmares also have been suggested as being memories or at least clues of past lives. I have experienced this type of recurring dream. There are two locations with specific details that crop up in my dreams several times a year, yet they are places I've never been to. The first is a large city and I am walking down the street. There is a candy magazine store on the corner and I go in and buy something. Then I go farther down the street to another building and in the lower level is a small restaurant where I meet some friends and make the acquaintance of some girls. And later I think that I must go back to that place to see if the girls are there again. The second is a smaller city I get the distinct feeling of a college town, and I can see the specific view of a specific corner, how it looks, what's there, and how the street slopes down, etc. These are not memories of places or events that have happened in this life, yet they recur in my dreams often. Are they memories of something important that happened in a past life? Likewise, can nightmares be reflections of past life traumas? that have clung to our spirits and haunt our sleep. Fears and Phobias Where do your fears and phobias come from? Fear of such things as spiders, snakes and heights seem to be built into the human psyche as part of our evolved survival instinct. Many people suffer from phobias that are completely irrational, however. Fear of water of birds, of numbers, of mirrors, of plants, of specific colours. The list goes on and on. People suffer from all kinds of bizarre phobias. While several years on a psychologist's couch might get to the root of those odd fears, those who believe in past lives wonder if they are carried over from a previous lifetime. Does a fear of water indicate a previous death by drowning? Could a fear of the colour red, for example, suggest that a person was struck or killed by a red streetcar? Affinity for a foreign culture. You probably know a person who was born and raised in the United States, but is an ardent Anglophile, a person who is interested to the point of obsession with British culture. You might also know someone who can think of little else but getting dressed up and acting the part for the next Renaissance Fair or Civil War reenactment. There are files for virtually every culture on the planet, both modern and ancient, affecting people who seem to have no rationale for their obsessions. Why? Are they merely trying to find familiarity in a culture in which they lived a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago? passions. Here is a related subject. It's good to have things that we are passionate about as long as they do not become obsessive or debilitating. But from where do passions arise for books, art, antiques, fashion, gardening, theaters, cars, trains, aircraft, the paranormal or any other number of subjects? Intense interest in a specific subject might be totally natural of course. But might there be a past-life connection in some cases? Uncontrolled habits. The dark side of passions are those uncontrolled habits and obsessions that take over people's lives and can even marginalise them in society. Obsessive compulsives and hoarders fit into this category. A man who has to turn the light switch off and on ten times before he leaves a room... A woman who collects newspapers into a six-foot-high stack throughout her house because she cannot bear to get rid of them. Each of us has at least one bad habit, from fingernail biting to gossiping to procrastination. The extreme forms include addictions to everything from television to Facebook to drugs. Again, psychological explanations can be found for these uncontrolled habits. Yet those who believe in reincarnation say they might have roots in past lives. Inexplicable Pains Do you have aches and pains that the doctors cannot quite pinpoint or find a medical explanation for? You might be labelled a hypochondriac, a person who imagines his or her ailments, or, as past life proponents suggest, These mysterious pains, sores, cramps and more could be reflections of suffering you endured in a previous existence. Birthmarks Birthmarks have been touted as evidence for reincarnation. In one fascinating case, an Indian boy claimed to remember the life of a man named Maharam who was killed with a shotgun fired at close range. This boy had an array of birthmarks in the centre of his chest that looked like they could possibly correspond to a shotgun blast. So the story was checked out. Indeed, there was a man named Maharam who was killed by a shotgun blast to the chest. An autopsy report recorded the man's chest wounds, which corresponded directly to the boy's birthmarks. In a similar way, various other physical traits, even deformities, have been suggested as having their precedent in a person's former life. As I've noted, there certainly are or could be medical, psychological or societal explanations for each of the above phenomena, and your experience with any of them does not necessarily mean that they can be attributed to a past life. After all, although there is some compelling case evidence for reincarnation and past lives. It is not a proven fact. Scientists believe they have discovered the origin of copulation. From the BBC.com website, a story by Rebecca Morrell. Sex emerged in an ancient Scottish lake. An international team of researchers say a fish called, I think very appropriately, Microbacchus dicki, is the first known animal to stop reproducing by spawning and instead mate by having sex. The primitive bony fish, which was about 8 centimetres long, lived in ancient lakes about 385 million years ago, in now what is Scotland. Lead author Professor John Long from Flinders University in Australia said, We have defined the very point in evolution where the origin of internal fertilisation in all animals began. That is a really big step Professor Long added that the discovery was made as he was looking through a box of ancient fish fossils. He noticed that one of the M. Dicki specimens had an odd L-shaped appendage. Further investigation revealed that this was the male fish's genitals. The male has long bony claspers. These are the grooves that they use to transfer sperm into the female, explained Professor Long. The female fish, on the other hand, had a small bony structure at their rear that locked the male organ into place. Constrained by their anatomy, the fish probably had to mate side by side. They couldn't have done it in a missionary position, said Professor Long. The very first act of copulation was done sideways, square dance style. He added that the fish were able to stay in the position with the help of their small arm-like fins. The little arms are very useful to link the male and female together so the male can get this large L-shaped sexual organ into position to dock with the female's genital plates, which are very rough like cheese graters. They act like Velcro, locking the male organ into position to transfer sperm. Surprisingly, the researchers think this first attempt to reproduce internally was not around for long. And judging by the above description, I wonder why. Hmm. As fish evolved, they reverted back to spawning, in which eggs and sperm to fertilise them are released into the water by female and male creatures respectively. It took another few million years for copulation to make a comeback, reappearing in ancestors of sharks and rays. Commenting on the research, Dr Matt Friedman from the University of Oxford in the UK said... The Placiderm group, which includes Microbacchius dicci, is a well-known group. The fossils are pretty common, and it's not as if this one was found in some far-off exotic part of the world. It was found in Scotland. It is very remarkable that we haven't noticed this before. And if you visit the show notes, there is a short animation, a photograph of the Microbacchaeus dicci fossil, and a drawing on how they actually got it together. They actually look like a pair of little robots in some sort of spacesuit. Anyway, an interesting story, and one of the great mysteries of life looks like it may be on the way to being solved. Where did sex come from? If you've ever pondered that question. Sweden's armed forces say they are looking for a submarine spotted in the country's waters not far from Stockholm. And speculation has centred on Russia. But the Russians have scoffed at the claims. From the BBC.com, an article by Paul Kirby. What's lurking in Sweden's waters? Initially, the Swedish military would not even say it was a sub preferring to refer to the mysterious submerged object as belonging to a foreign power. Despite Russian protestations, their navy has been singled out as most likely. They have large submarines, 60 metres or 70 metre class, as well as small, and the feeling is this one is probably small. There are two Russian mini-submarines that could fit the bill, the Piranha, seen as a diving submarine, and the Triton, used for research purposes. Where is it? That is the great mystery. Reported sightings have been in the southern Stockholm archipelago, but there are so many islands that defence officials say searching the area is like looking for a needle in a haystack. The first photo appearing to show the submarine went viral, and the armed forces have asked for further help in finding it but they did not help matters when they deliberately gave out false information so as not to help a foreign power. When did it first show up? Much of the detail is unconfirmed, but the Swedish media say the first emergency signal was heard on October 16, leading to reports of a damaged submarine. A radio conversation in Russian was reportedly detected on Thursday between the Stockholm Archipelago and the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad, where Russia's Baltic fleet is based. A man-made object was then spotted in Canholms Bay around midday on Friday. The military admitted late on Friday that something was up and that ships, planes and hundreds of people were involved in the search. The search on Saturday centred on Canholms Bay, an area of busy shipping lanes used by passenger ferries between Stockholm and the Latvian capital, Riga. The first sighting captured on camera was released on Sunday. But Monday the military admitted it had given out a wrong location for the picture so as not to help a foreign power. The military said late on Tuesday it was prepared to use force, hours after naval vessels scoured Ingaro Bay. After days of working day and night, the Navy said on Wednesday it was reducing the number of ships in the search, but was not de-escalating its efforts. How are the Swedes looking for it underwater? All manner of naval vessels have been used, including an M-74 minesweeper, HMS Cullen, a stealth corvette, HMS Visby, and fast assault craft. The Visby is equipped with sonar, a 57mm gun and two ROVs, remotely operated vehicles. One for underwater mine hunting and the other for mine disposal. On Tuesday, Dagens Nyata, newspaper reported that an underwater ROV was being used in the search in Ingero Bay. The Russians have treated the allegations with disdain, even suggesting it might be a Dutch submarine. But the Ukraine crisis has revived many of the trappings of the Cold War. In the space of a couple of months, Estonia has accused Russia of abducting a security official. Finland has said Russian planes entered its airspace and one of its research boats was interfered with in international waters in the Baltic Sea. NATO says a Russian spy plane briefly entered Estonian airspace on the 21st of October after flying near Denmark and Sweden. Sweden, like Finland, is not part of NATO, but both have tightened their ties with the alliance, so Russia may be flexing its muscles in response to the two countries signing a pact on the 5th of September, which enables joint training exercises and assistance from NATO troops in emergencies. Many Swedes remember when a Russian sub loaded with nuclear torpedoes ran aground near a Swedish naval base in 1981. So what are the Russians doing about it? Their initial response was a flat denial. There have been no extraordinary, let alone emergency situations, involving Russian military vessels, the Defence Ministry in Moscow said on Sunday. Some analysts in Moscow have queried whether the hunt is more about Swedish politics than Russian, and the Swedish military's need to justify higher military funding with the arrival of Prime Minister Stefan Löfven's centre-left government. There are, however, reports that Russian ships have been in the vicinity. One Russian-owned oil ship, NS Concord, was seen circling in the area, but the Swedish Coast Guard said its movements were not inconsistent with an oil tanker, and by Tuesday evening it was reportedly leaving the area. More intriguing was the involvement of another ship, Professor Logachev, which is described as a research vessel specialising in studies on the ocean floor. Swedish media said it was seen heading towards the Swedish-Baltic island of Gotland late on Tuesday night. Is the sub still there? Well, the Swedish military have not given up looking for it, but they have not confirmed any recent sightings, and the overwhelming difficulty of searching an area which has so many islands is proving exhausting. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And that's quoted from the Bhagavad Gita. Seven years after the nuclear tests in Alamogordo, New Mexico, Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, was lecturing at a college when a student asked if it was the first atomic test conducted. Yes, in modern times, he replied. The sentence, enigmatic and incomprehensible at the time, was actually an allusion to ancient Hindu texts that describe an apocalyptic catastrophe that doesn't correlate with volcanic eruptions or other known phenomena. Oppenheimer, who avidly studied ancient Sanskrit, was undoubtedly referring to a passage in the Bhagavad Gita that describes a global disaster caused by an unknown weapon. Array of iron. While it may be alarming to the scientific community to speak of the existence of atomic weapons before the present cycle of civilization, evidence of this phenomenon seems to whisper its verses in every corner of the planet. This evidence comes not only from the Hindu verses, but also from ample extensions of fused glass fragments scattered throughout many deserts of the world. Silicon crystals, curiously cast, resemble remarkably the same fragments found after the nuclear explosion in Alamogordo's White Sands atomic testing area. In December 1932, Patrick Clayton, a surveyor for the Egyptian Geological Survey, drove between the dunes of the Great Sand Sea, close to the Saad Plateau in Egypt, when he heard crunching under the wheels... When he examined what was causing the sound, he found great chunks of glass in the sand. The find caught the attention of geologists around the world and planted the seed for one of the biggest modern scientific enigmas. What phenomenon could be capable of raising the temperature of desert sand to at least 3,300 degrees Fahrenheit, casting it into great sheets of solid yellow-green glass? While passing through Alamogordo's White Sands Missile Range, Albion W. Hart, one of the first engineers to graduate from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, observed that the chunks of glass left by nuclear tests were identical to the formations that he observed in the African desert 50 years earlier. However, the extension of the cast in the desert would require that the explosion be 10,000 times more powerful than that observed in New Mexico. Many scientists have sought to explain the dispersion of large glass rocks in the deserts of Libya, the Sahara, Mojave and other places in the world as products of gigantic meteorite impacts. However, due to the absence of accompanying craters in the deserts, the theory doesn't hold up. Neither satellite imagery nor sonar has been able to find any holes. Furthermore, the glass rocks found in the Libyan desert present a grade of transparency and purity, 99%, that is not typical in the fusions of fallen meteorites, in which iron and other materials are mixed in with the cast silicon after the impact. Even so, scientists have proposed that the meteorites causing the glass rocks could have exploded several miles above the Earth's surface, similar to the Tunguska event, or simply rebounded in such a way that they carried with it the evidence of the impact, but leaving the heat from the friction. However, this doesn't explain how two of the areas found in close proximity in the Libyan desert show the same pattern. The probability of two meteorite impacts so close is very low. Nor does it explain the absence of water in the tektite specimens, when these areas of impact were thought to be covered in some 14,000 years ago. The city where culture emerged in the present day Indus Valley is a great enigma. The rocks of the ruins have been partially crystallized, along with its hazy inhabitants. Moreover, mysterious local texts speak of a period of seven days of gratitude toward flying cars called Vimana for saving the lives of 30,000 inhabitants from an horrific episode. In 1927, years after the discovery of the Mahinodaro ruins, 44 skeletons were found on the outskirts of the city. The majority were face down, lying in the street and holding hands as if a serious catastrophe had suddenly engulfed the town. In addition, some bodies present signs of unexplainable radiation, Many experts believe that Mahinodaro is an unequivocal sign of nuclear catastrophe, two millennia before Christ. Nevertheless, the city is not the only ancient locale suspected to have gone nuclear. Dozens of buildings from the ancient world present bricks with fused rocks, like the heat test that modern scientists cannot explain ancient forts and towers in Scotland, Ireland and England. The city of Catalhuyuk in Turkey. Alalakh in northern Syria. The ruins of the seven cities near Ecuador. Cities between the Ganges River in India and the hills of Raj Mahal. Areas of the Mojave Desert in the United States. In whatever place of the world, the presence of an abysmal temperature... And vivid descriptions of a terrible cataclysm suggest that there may have been an earlier epoch in which possibly nuclear technology was already known, an epoch in which atomic technology was turned against man. And if you visit the show notes, there's a few photographs and a few displays and a picture of the glass rock to go with the story. Was the famous author killed from a beating, from carbon monoxide poisoning, from alcohol withdrawal? Here are the top nine theories. From the www.smithsonianmag.com website. A story by Natasha Geeling The still mysterious death of Edgar Allan Poe. It was raining in Baltimore on October 3, 1849. But that didn't stop Joseph W. Walker, a compositor for the Baltimore Sun, from heading out to Gunners Hall, a public house bustling with activity. It was election day and Gunners Hall served as a pop-up polling location for the Fourth Ward polls. When Walker arrived at Gunners Hall, he found a man delirious and dressed in shabby second-hand clothes, lying in the gutter. The man was semi-conscious and unable to move, but as Walker approached him, he discovered something unexpected. The man was Edgar Allan Poe. Worried about the health of the addled poet, Walker stopped and asked Poe if he had any acquaintances in Baltimore that might be able to help him. Poe gave Walker the name of Joseph E. Snodgrass, a magazine editor with some medical training. Immediately, Walker penned Snodgrass a letter asking for help. Baltimore City, October 3, 1849. Dear Sir, There is a gentleman, rather the worse for wear, at Ryan's fourth ward, Poles, who goes under the cognomen of Edgar Allan Poe, and who appears in great distress, and he says he is acquainted with you. He is in need of immediate assistance. Yours in haste, Jos W. Walker, to Dr. J. E. Snodgrass. On October 27, almost a week earlier, Poe had left Richmond, Virginia, bound for Philadelphia, to edit a collection of poems for Mrs. St. Leon Loud, a minor figure in American poetry at the time. When Walker found Poe in delirious disarray outside of the polling place, it was the first anyone had heard or seen of the poet since his departure from Richmond. Poe never made it to Philadelphia to attend to his editing business, nor did he ever make it back to New York, where he had been living, to escort his aunt back to Richmond for his impending wedding. Poe was never to leave Baltimore, where he launched his career in the early 19th century. Again, and in the four days between Walker finding Poe outside the public house and Poe's death on October 7, he never regained enough consciousness to explain how he had come to be found in soiled clothes, not his own, incoherent on the streets. Instead, Poe spent his final days wavering between fits of delirium, gripped by visual hallucinations. The night before his death, according to his attending physician, Dr. John J. Moran, Poe repeatedly called out for Reynolds, a figure who, to this day, remains a mystery. Poe's death, shrouded in mystery, seems ripped directly from the pages of one of his own works. He had spent years crafting a careful image of a man inspired by adventure and fascinated with enigmas, a poet a detective and author, a world traveller who fought in the Greek War of Independence and was held prisoner in Russia. But though his death certificate listed the cause of death as phrenitis or swelling of the brain, the mysterious circumstances surrounding his death have led many to speculate about the true cause of Poe's demise. Maybe it's fitting that since he invented the detective story, says Chris Semptner, curator of the Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia, he left us with a real-life mystery. Theory number one, beating. In 1867, one of the first theories to deviate from either phrenitis or alcohol was published by biographer E. Oakes Smith in her article, Autobiographic Notes, Edgar Allan Poe. At the instigation of a woman... Smith writes, who considered herself injured by him, he was cruelly beaten, blow upon blow, by a ruffian who knew of no better mode of avenging supposed injuries. It is well known that a brain fever followed. Other accounts also mention ruffians who had beaten Poe senseless before his death. As Eugene Didier wrote in his 1872 article, The Grave of Poe, that while in Baltimore... Poe ran into some friends from West Point, who prevailed upon him to join them for drinks. Poe, unable to handle liquor, became madly drunk after a single glass of champagne, after which he left his friends to wander the streets. In his drunken state, he was robbed and beaten by ruffians, and left insensible in the street all night. Number 2. Cooping Others believe that Poe fell victim to a practice known as cooping, a method of voter fraud practiced by gangs in the 19th century where an unsuspecting victim would be kidnapped, disguised and forced to vote for a specific candidate multiple times under multiple disguised identities. Voter fraud was extremely common in Baltimore around the mid-1800s and the polling site where Walker found the dishevelled Poe was a known place that coopers brought their victims. The fact that Poe was found delirious on election day, then, is no coincidence. Over the years, the cooping theory has come to be one of the more widely accepted explanations for Poe's strange demeanour before his death. Before Prohibition, voters were given alcohol after voting as a sort of reward. Had Poe been forced to vote multiple times in a couping scheme? That might explain his semi-conscious, ragged state. Around the late 1870s, Poe's biographer, J. H. Ingram, received several letters that blamed Poe's death on a couping scheme. A letter from William Hand Brown, a member of the faculty at John Hopkins, explains that the general belief here is that Poe was seized by one of these gangs his death happening just at election time. An election for sheriff took place on October the 4th. Cooped, stupefied with liquor, dragged out and voted, then turned adrift to die. 3. Alcohol A lot of the ideas that have come up over the years have centred around the fact that Poe couldn't handle alcohol, says Sempler. It has been documented that after a glass of wine, he was staggering drunk. His sister had the same problem. It seems to be something hereditary. Months before his death, Poe became a vocal member of the temperance movement, eschewing alcohol, which he'd struggled with all his life. Biographer Susan Archer Wise recalls in her biography, The Last Days of Edgar A. Poe an event towards the end of Poe's time in Richmond that might be relevant to theorists that prefer a death-by-drinking demise for Poe. Poe had fallen ill in Richmond, and after making a somewhat miraculous recovery, was told by his attending physician that another such attack would prove fatal. According to Wise, Poe replied that if people would not tempt him, he would not fall suggesting that the first illness was brought on by a bout of drinking. Those around Poe during his final days seem convinced that the author did indeed fall into that temptation, drinking himself to death. As his close friend J.P. Kennedy wrote on October 10, 1949, On Tuesday last, Edgar A. Poe died in town here at the hospital from the effects of a debauch. He fell in with some companion here who seduced him to the bottle, which it was said he had renounced some time ago. The consequence was fear, delirium and madness, and in a few days a termination of his sad career in the hospital. Poor Poe, a bright but unsteady light has been awfully quenched. Though the theory that Poe's drinking led to his death fails to explain his five-day disappearance, or his second-hand clothes on October 3, it was nonetheless a popular theory propagated by Snodgrass after Poe's death. Snodgrass, a member of the temperance movement, gave lectures across the country blaming Poe's death on binge drinking. Modern science, however, has thrown a wrench into Snodgrass's talking points. Samples of Poe's hair from after his death show low levels of lead, explains Sempner which is an indication that Poe remained faithful to his vow of sobriety up until his demise. 4. Carbon monoxide poisoning In 1999, public health researcher Albert Dene argued that Poe's death was the result of carbon monoxide poisoning from coal gas that was used for indoor lighting during the 19th century. Donet took clippings of Poe's hair and tested them for certain heavy metals that would be able to reveal the presence of coal gas. The test was inconclusive, leading biographers and historians to largely discredit Donet's theory. 5. Heavy metal poisoning While Donet's test didn't reveal levels of heavy metal consistent with carbon monoxide poisoning, the tests did reveal elevated levels of mercury in Poe's system months before his death. According to Semptner, Poe's mercury levels were most likely elevated as a result of a cholera epidemic he'd been exposed to in July of 1849 while in Philadelphia. Poe's doctor prescribed calomel or mercury chloride. Mercury poisoning, Sampson says, could explain some of Poe's hallucinations and delirium before his death. However, the levels of mercury found in Poe's hair, even at their highest, are still 30 times below the level consistent with mercury poisoning. 6. Rabies In 1996, Dr. R. Michael Benitez was participating in a clinical pathologic conference where doctors are given patients, along with a list of symptoms and instructed to diagnose and compare with other doctors as well as the written record. The symptoms of the anonymous patient, EP, a writer from Richmond, were clear. EP had succumbed to rabies. According to EP's supervising physician, Dr J.J. Moran, EP had been admitted to a hospital due to lethargy and confusion. Once admitted, EP's condition began a rapid downward spiral. Shortly, the patient was exhibiting delirium, visual hallucinations, wide variations in pulse rate and rapid shallow breathing. Within four days, the median length of survival after the onset of serious rabies symptoms, EP was dead. E.P. Benitez soon found out wasn't just any author from Richmond. It was Poe, whose death the Maryland cardiologist had diagnosed as a clear case of rabies, a fairly common virus in the 19th century. Running counter to any prevailing theories at the time, Benitez's diagnosis ran in the September 1996 issue of the Maryland Medical Journal. As Benitez pointed out in his article... Without DNA evidence, it's impossible to say with 100% certainty that Poe succumbed to the rabies virus. There are a few kinks in the theory, including no evidence of hydrophobia. Those afflicted with rabies develop a fear of water. Poe was reported to have been drinking water at the hospital until his death. Nor any evidence of an animal bite, though some with rabies don't remember being bitten by an animal. Still, at the time of the article's publication, Jeff Jerome, curator of the Poe House Museum in Baltimore, agreed with Benitez's diagnosis. This is the first time since Poe died that a medical person looked at Poe's death without any preconceived notions, Jerome told the Chicago Tribune in October of 1996. If he knew it was Edgar Allan Poe, he'd think, oh yeah, drugs, alcohol, and that would influence his decision... Dr. Benitez had no agenda. Number seven, brain tumour. One of the most recent theories about Poe's death suggests that the author succumbed to a brain tumour, which influenced his behaviour before his death. When Poe died, he was buried rather unceremoniously in an unmarked grave in a Baltimore graveyard. 26 years later, a statue was erected honouring Poe near the graveyard's entrance. Poe's coffin was dug up and his remains exhumed in order to be moved to the new place of honour. But more than two decades of buried decay had not been kind to Poe's coffin or the corpse within it, and the apparatus fell apart as workers tried to move it from one part of the graveyard to another. Little remained of Poe's body But one worker did remark on a strange feature on Poe's skull, a mass rolling around inside. Newspapers of the day claimed that the clump was Poe's brain, shriveled, yet intact, after almost three decades in the ground. We know today that the mass could not be Poe's brain, which is one of the first parts of the body to rot after death. But Matthew Pearl, an American author who wrote about Poe's death, was nonetheless intrigued by this clump. He contacted a forensic pathologist who told him that while the clump couldn't be a brain, it could be a brain tumour which can calcify after death into hard masses. According to Semptner, Pearl isn't the only person to believe Poe suffered from a brain tumour. A New York physician once told Poe he had a lesion on his brain that caused his adverse reactions to alcohol. Number 8. Flu A far less sinister theory suggests that Poe merely succumbed to the flu, which might have turned into deadly pneumonia on his deathbed. As Semptner explains, in the days leading up to Poe's departure from Richmond, the author visited a physician complaining of illness. His last night in town, he was very sick and his soon-to-be wife noted that he had a weak pulse, a fever, and she didn't think he should take the journey to Philadelphia, says Semptner. He visited a doctor and the doctor also told him not to travel, that he was too sick. According to the newspaper reports from the time, it was raining in Baltimore when Poe was there, which Semptner thinks could explain why Poe was found in clothes not his own. The cold and the rain exasperated the flu he already had, said Semptner, and maybe that eventually led to pneumonia. The high fever might account for his hallucinations and his confusion. And number nine, murder. In his 2000 book, Midnight Dreary, The Mysterious Death of Edgar Allan Poe, author John Evangelist Walsh presents yet another theory about Poe's death, that Poe was murdered by the brothers of his wealthy fiancée, Elmira Shelton. Using evidence from newspapers, letters and memoirs, Walsh argues that Poe actually made it to Philadelphia, where he was ambushed by Shelton's three brothers, who warned Poe against marrying their sister. Frightened by the experience, Poe disguised himself in new clothes, counting for, in Walsh's mind, his second-hand clothing, and hid in Philadelphia for nearly a week before heading back to Richmond to marry Shelton. Shelton's brothers intercepted Poe in Baltimore, Walsh postulates, beat him and forced him to drink whiskey, which they knew would send Poe into a deathly sickness. Walsh's theory has gained little traction among Poe historians or book reviewers. Edwin J. Barton, in a review for the journal American Literature, called Walsh's story... Only plausible, not wholly persuasive. Midnight Dreary is an interesting and entertaining book, he concluded, but its value to literary scholarship is limited and oblique. For Sempner, however, none of the theories fully explain Poe's curious end. I've never been completely convinced of any one theory, and I believe Poe's cause of death resulted from a combination of factors, he says. His attending physician is our best source of evidence. If he recorded on the mortality schedule that Poe died of phrenitis, Poe was most likely suffering from encephalitis or meningitis, either of which might explain his symptoms. To bring the podcast to a close, a couple of stories from the www.yourghoststories.com website, and these are based on real stories. The first is from Wolf Hunter XX, unseen entity while investigating a crime scene. I am a police officer in Florida. One night while working the midnight shift I was dispatched along with another police officer to the scene of a delayed burglary call. The burglary had occurred at a vacant residence which was located in a rural area and located directly to an old closed down and vacant feed store. The feed store had been broken into as well so myself and the other officer had a lot of work ahead of us. I entered into the vacant feed store through the front door, and immediately heard what sounded like a psst type sound. It immediately made me perk up, because it legitimately sounded like someone saying psst as if to get my attention. I looked around with my flashlight and did not find anything there. Thinking my mind was playing tricks on me, I continued about my work and began processing the crime scene for evidence. It should be noted that I was completely in work mode and not thinking about anything ghost-related or paranormal-related whatsoever. After a short time, I exited the feed store to retrieve more supplies from my patrol car. When I walked back into the feed store, this time I immediately heard a loud, quick whistle. It was loud and distinctive enough to make me snap my head around again, sounding as if someone was trying to get my attention. This time I yelled out, Hello! and looked around again with my flashlight. Nothing there. For a second I truly thought maybe the suspect in the break-in was still inside and trying to play games or something. But I dispelled that notion after I searched the whole inside of the store and found nothing. By this point in time I was slightly freaked, but knew I still had a crime scene to process and a report to write. I shrugged the noises off and concentrated on the task at hand. After a while I had finished in the feed store and responded back to the original residence where the other officer was processing his crime scene. I did not mention what I heard next door as the other officer probably would have laughed and called me a scaredy cat. While I was helping him process his scene he told me the owner of the vacant residence had gone home as the processing was going to take a long time, and it was about 2am. After about 15 minutes or so, we both distinctly heard the sound of a car door opening and closing. Thinking it was the owner, I mentioned to the other officer that the owner must have returned to the scene to check out our progress. Only thing is, no one came into the residence. About 5-10 to minutes later, we both heard a car door open and close a second time. This time I said, I wonder what that guy is doing out there. Again we both shrugged it off. Now picture this. My patrol car is parked directly in front of the residence with the front door wide open and my headlights on to provide us light in the house. The house was vacant and therefore had no power. About five minutes later we heard a car door open and close for a third time. This time the sound of the door closing was significantly close and sounded exactly like my patrol car door. Thinking that some crazy person had maybe entered my patrol car to try and steal it, we ran outside immediately after hearing the sound. We were outside by my patrol car in about three seconds. Now I don't know any human being who could escape detection in three seconds, but I swear to you, the owner was not outside, and in fact we did not see one human soul outside at all. No sound of anyone running away, no one hiding underneath or inside our patrol cars. Nothing. The other officer was more freaked out than I was. We agreed never to talk about it. To this day, this event remains unexplained. Cemetery Scare by Searching Stars It was my sister's senior year of high school, and I was an 8th grader. That night, for an assignment, my sister was required to take pictures of graves in a local cemetery and make a poem about the person who had died. The poem did not have to be true, it just had to be inspired by the person's grave. So my mother, my sister and my sister's boyfriend and I all piled into my father's truck and we drove out to the cemetery just outside of town. It was around 9pm, and it was already pitch black and there was no moon. If you've never been in a cemetery at night and felt what it is like, I dare you to do so. For me, just the atmosphere was creepy, with the headlights being the only source of light, illuminating the graves of those who had died. At this age I had had one or two encounters with ghosts, so just being in this place had a strange effect on me that made me edgy and nervous. My sister and her boyfriend got out of the truck and started walking along the graves with my mum driving on the road that trailed through the cemetery for those who just wanted to drive through to see the graves. We got to a certain grave that was depicted as an angel standing with its arms open and looking down, seeming to open its arms, waiting for an embrace. My sister was fascinated with this grave while I, still in the truck, was completely freaked out by it. In the light cast by the headlights, it seemed almost alive, like it was staring at my sister, waiting to grab her. We kept driving along behind my sister and her boyfriend, waiting for her to finish. Suddenly I saw a black shadow dart out from behind a grave and vanish. More appeared as we went on, darting just out of the reach of the headlights. Still enough to see them, but not enough to make out any features. My sister claims to have seen them too, and that their faces were white, like the dead with black holes for eyes and mouths. She had to finish writing her assignment though, so we continued into the cemetery. My mother never even seeing what we did. Suddenly I saw a black shadow press itself to my window. Its eyes were like black orbs, and its mouth opened wide like a snake's wood, sending out a shivering death rattle. The temperature in the truck dropped so fast I could see my breath two seconds after I'd been telling my mum I was sweating. I didn't scream, but just stared at it in horror so as not to freak out my mum and make her think I was having hallucinations. The shadow moved away and vanished, and they all disappeared. My sister never saw the one by the truck, but this freaked me out so badly, I had nightmares for years about it. It was a long night afterwards. Strange Night at an Old Haunted Church by Katie Hall 14 I'm not one to actually believe much in ghosts and spirits, but this night still keeps me wondering... One night last year, the month of October, some friends and I decided to go to an old church, Rembert Church in Ashwood, South Carolina. I have been to this church with some of the same friends at least three times. It is known to be haunted. That is what I've been told. The night that strange things started happening is when five of my friends and I went. Once the car entered the church grounds, three of my friends said they could feel evil already. They were the type of people that strongly believed in ghosts and spirits. Since I don't believe in that kind of stuff, I wasn't scared. So we all hopped out of the car. We all just looked around the graveyard looking at graves. After a while, me and one of my friends, Lindsay, got tired of doing that, so we started walking around together. As my friend Lindsay and I were walking, I would notice that she kept looking at a particular spot. Every time her eyes set on it, She went closer. And strangely I was drawn also. It was a little tiny building not far from the graveyard. It was so dark so all I could see in there was a sink and a toilet. It must have been an outside bathroom. But Lindsay and I for some odd reason were really drawn to wanting to get closer to this little building. I finally pulled her away as she was just about to go into it. Before we got to the others, we had to pass the church. She cried out that she saw something in one of the windows, huge glass windows of the church. I covered that side of her face and told her not to look. I did look myself. I saw nothing. We hurried away quickly and went back with everyone else. We walked around more with everyone and then Lindsay and two of my other friends went to sit in the car I was with my guy best friend admiring graves while the other girl was somewhere looking at graves also. Then out of nowhere, I hear someone yell my guy best friend's name and for him to come quick. So he starts running to the car. So do I and my other friend that was looking at the graves too. When we reach the car, I see Lindsay sitting there in the passenger side with the door open and her legs rocking and focusing on something in the distance. Then my guy best friend goes and tries to talk to her and asks her what's wrong. She wouldn't answer him. I noticed something wasn't quite right about the way her face looked and I just stood there watching them in shock. Then she grabbed him and he was trying to get her off of him. She was strong. He couldn't get her off of him. That is when he knew that something was wrong along with everyone else. When she finally calmed down, he was in front of her asking her to say Jesus. She couldn't do it. She could get out the G, then it stopped. She didn't sound like herself. I was scared and didn't know what to do other than run and hug the girl that also was at the car too. I was crying and I could tell she was scared too. I don't know what happened when they went to the car, but I still think maybe if I was with her, something like this wouldn't have happened. I did earlier that night when we were walking around asking her if she was okay. She said, ''Yes, as long as you are with me.'' ''To this day, I think about that.'' Finally, things settled down after my guy best friend talked to Lindsay. By talking, I mean he believed he could help keep evil away. We then decided to leave. It was for the best. Lindsay was staying the night with me over at my house that night. When we got to my house, we came straight to my room. I looked at her and she looked at me. I believe we were both just in shock about what had happened. I looked down at her arm and saw the strangest thing that keeps me wondering. She had a big red bulged up spot on her left arm, about four inches long and three inches wide. It was so weird. I touched it and it was hot, while the rest of her skin was cold. I could tell that she was worried about it also. I called my guy best friend that helped her and told him about it. He told me to get her to say Jesus and read the Bible together. She said Jesus fine. I got a Bible and I read a page and I asked her if she would read. She did. Everything was fine the rest of the night. The red spot was gone the next day, but Lindsay and I have agreed to not ever go back to Rembrandt Church ever again. And I haven't been and she hasn't. But I really still wonder to this day if something really did happen that night. Had to. What was an explanation to that big red spot on her arm that was so hot? Music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes are held at the Origins podcast website, www.origins.info. We have a Facebook page on which I put information about the podcast and what's going on with me and the podcast and things like that, www.facebook.com forward slash Rexy or just click on the Facebook link at the show notes. And I'd like to say a big thank you to these people who have given a donation to the podcast since last time. So it's a big thank you to these people. So it's a big thank you to Logan Roberts, Stephen Rochelle, Adam Homewood, Sean Yarnell, and Andres Fortuna. Thank you everyone for your help. It's greatly appreciated. So until next time, everyone, whether it be the Origins podcast or another Mysteries Abound, this is Paul saying... Bye for now, keep safe, and keep well.